Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The man you see behind me was a living legend, and the people who worked with him would say that, but I was thinking as I was preparing for this that there's an art form, it's called photo mosaic, and it looks like a person's face, but it's actually made up of a bunch of pictures of them or their life. And that's something that I, I would think of when I would think of Wilfred Grenfell. All the people that he interacted with, the kind, the strong, the poor, the giving, the courageous, the wise people, his mentor, Dr. Treves, or the brave young man who took a stand for Christ at one of Dwight Moody's tent meetings, or the fisherman that taught in the ways of the sea early in his life, his wise aunt that convinced him that becoming a big game hunter was not a viable option for a career path, the countless patients that he encountered who taught him the providential ways of God, the volunteers who sacrificed so much of the worldly good to provide for those in need, and all of these were placed strategically, just like the one the artist of the mosaic, assembled by an invisible hand that would over time contribute to the form of this beautiful and vibrant life of Sir Wilfred Grinfell. So before we go on, let's ask the Lord to bless our time and uh, to direct our eyes to Christ as we study this man. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you that you are faithful. We're grateful, Lord, for your word and how it changes hearts and it gives life uh, to those who are not alive. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, grant to us as hearers today um, not only knowledge, but also assertiveness in our decision-making and the practical ways of life. And we uh, ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So our man of the hour, Sir Wilfred Grenfell, was born February 28th, 1865, which you know is the end of our civil war here in America, in the coastal village of Parkgate, Cheshire, on the World Peninsula in northwest England. To understand this man, we must first understand where he grew up geographically. And so I've kind of assembled a few outward views of the world, and we'll zoom in here so you can see my arrow there. There's the United Kingdom. Here is a closer look. It's wedged right into the western portion of the United Kingdom. A little bit closer now, you see it's just south and west of Liverpool. It's a small place called Parkgate, and you can see the sanded areas there. That is called the Sands of D, and it was written about by one of the great authors, Charles Kingsley, who was a great author, not so much in the doctrinal areas of life, called himself a Christian, uh, believed that uh, the Norse myths and Christianity merged together, not a great theology or doctrine, but um, he actually had an influence on Wilfred Grenfell, we'll get into that in a little bit, but... The Sands of Dee, that's an estuary, 
and the Irish Sea would flow in with the tides, and it would bring in fish, it would bring in other things along with the river flowing, the Dee River, uh, to the far left there. And so all of this area here was right on his front doorstep, literally. So there's Parkgate and the small town of Parkgate there. Um, and you can see all the, the small inlets there of the water that constantly is draining back out to sea when the tides go out. This is the main walk, and you can see all the grasses here, and that's a seasonal thing. A lot of times it's flooded through this area. This is a, a look from the rooftop of where he was raised. It's called Moston House, and it was a school, and that's it right there. One of the biographers talks about the red sandstone and how the waves would crash against the sandstone, and he said it was quite a distraction for the boys of the school, especially when they wanted to go out and play, uh, for this spray to be all over the windows of the school. Um, the Grinfell family came to Britain as early as the 12th century uh, from France as Granvilles, and uh, his father, Algernon Grenfell, uh, came to Moston House School in the year 1862, and was there for three years. Uh, this building used to be an inn when Parkgate was more of a flourishing city. Um, but it was turned into a school, and Algernon, Grenfell's, uh, Wilfred Grenfell's father, was the headmaster. And so he grew up as a headmaster's son, and he did not reflect that in his academics. He was much more of an athletic uh, person. He was much more concerned with getting out, exploring the world, and his, in his autobiography uh, gives some very good accounts of some of his young, reckless endeavors that would kind of set the tone for his adult life as he grew up on the sands of D. At age eight, for instance, he ventured across the sands barefoot, as was normal for him, to hunt oyster catchers, which were birds that would fly in and snatch the oysters that would come in with the tides. And as he was returning home, he fell into a deep hole. With all the waters draining down, there were all these pitfalls. And he, uh, it was dark, it was becoming dark, he lost his gun in the deep hole, uh, lost his catch, and made it out alive, obviously, but was very upset that he had lost his gun. His parents also were, and did not give him uh, hunting privileges again until he was 12. Um, sometimes he and the boys would raid the nurse's uh, kitchen cabinet at night um, while the nurse was asleep and his father and mother were out of town. They would plan very strategically how they would do this and then they would uh, toss biscuits in the, the bounty that they had stolen to the fishermen that would pass by the area in the morning. So all of this is documented in uh, James Lennox Kerr's biography of Wilfred Grenfell. He also saw uh, firsthand some of the dangers of the Dee River and a lot of this factored into some of his uh, analogies that he would give in his uh, gospel messages about you know, losing a foothold, clinging to Christ. One man that he saw was carried away by not only the incoming tides, but also the, 
There were floodwaters that were coming in that overtook him. Um, he was able to dig his net uh, handle. He had a long-handled net into the ground until some rescuers were able to run a boat out to him. And um, he did. He was rescued. But these were the kinds of things that were developing uh, Grenfell as a boy. And also, he would go out into these fishing boats. As you can see, it's a very heavily uh, fishing-influenced community. And at age, uh, for, until the age of 14, he would go out with fishermen, not for a long period of time, just overnight, uh, to experience the life. And he thought it was interesting. Most of the people that he dealt with there were poorer. He didn't realize that he had means more than the others did that he encountered in the town, um, but that was just his normal. There were people who had and people that didn't, but he didn't view them as different. He was their neighbor. So he left uh, Park Gate at the age of 14, went to Marlboro College, uh, got involved with rugby, different um, boxing. He became a very proficient boxer. He was there for two years. Um, his instructors did not uh, award him good marks because he didn't earn them. But he was sent home because he had a very bad cough. They were concerned for him. It was not tuberculosis, thankfully. But uh, he eventually had to leave Parkgate altogether when his father, Algernon, left Moston House as the headmaster and was convicted to become a chaplain in uh, London, at the London Hospital. And so the whole family moved just outside of London uh, for his new career path as a chaplain. Now, at the age of 17, Wilford was encouraged by his father that he must also make a career move, and that's when he decided to become a big game hunter. He enjoyed hunting, so therefore he would go to Africa, one of the uh, English territories there uh, where they had presence and become a big game hunter. Well, after his father's reprimand and a visit with his aunt, his wise aunt, and a visit from a, when he visited a family friend who was also a physician in London, he decided that, well, perhaps he would become a doctor. Based on seeing a brain in a pickle jar, he saw the brain and he thought, well, that's something to be studied. It's, it's interesting. And he, was, he had to be interested to learn something out of a book. Uh, so he decided to become a doctor in 1883 and was under the mentorship and the instruction of a man, Dr. Frederick Treves, who became Sir Frederick Treves. Without the influence of Frederick Treves, we probably would not be discussing this man today, Wilfred Grenfell because he was not a good student. And as a matter of fact, it says in multiple sources, it says that Grenfell's assessments were that he was a very poor student. In uh, Kerr's biography, he says that he attended only four lectures out of a possible 60 in medicine in his second year in medical school. The way they had it set up was attendance was not necessary for a degree. It was based on the assessments. So he would cram, he knew what questions would be asked, he, he did just enough to get by, which is obviously a weakness, 
So no idol worship for Wilfred Grenfell or any other man, especially not him. But it says that it was during these times of uh, following his instructors, uh, shadowing them, that he learned the most. And also, he appreciated his mentor, even though his mentor told him how it was with his marks. He appreciated Dr. Treves. Dr. Treves was athletic. He was organized. He was cutting edge in the progress of modern medicine at the time. And so he looked up to him. And I think that most of what he actually accomplished in medical school was to please Dr. Treves. London in the 1880s and 90s, during this time at the hospital and after he got his degree in 1888, and I'm skipping ahead, I'm not to 1888 yet, but there were listed 380,000 people who were very poor, 220,000 that were next to starvation in the city, 33,000 homeless, and there were 51,000 workhouses, very destitute city, Oliver Twist, um, Charles Dickens wrote about it in a few of his novels. But during the year of 1885, Grenfell matured as a physician, but it wasn't because of his experience in the medical, excuse me, the medical field or the hospital. It was because he came face to face with a traveling evangelist by the name of Dwight Moody. And so I'm going to skip ahead here. This is the London Hospital where he went to school. This what well, this is where he served. This was not his this was not Oxford where he was training, but this was where he shadowed Treves. And here we are with uh, Dwight Moody. And you can see the drawing of one of his tent meetings. He said, I turned into, this is from his autobiography, he said, I turned into a large tent erected in Purlieu of Shadwell, the district to which I happened to have been called. It proved to be an evangelistic meeting of the then famous Moody and Sankey. And Sankey was the musician who accompanied him. He said, it was so new to me that when a tedious prayer bore, that's how he described the person who stood up to pray for this great tent meeting, a tedious prayer bore began with a long oration, I started to leave. And that was just like him. Suddenly the leader, Moody, who I learned afterwards was D.L. Moody, called out to the audience, "Uh, let us sing a hymn while our brother finishes his prayer. Because Moody could sense also the attention drawn to himself in his praying. and He said his practicality interested me and I stayed the surface out. When I left, it was with a determination either to make religion a real effort, to do as I thought Christ to do in my place as a doctor, or frankly, abandon it. He said later, this was a couple weeks later, whenever Moody was still in town, he said, I went down to hear the brothers, he said, G.E. and C.T. I don't know who these were, but they were apparently great athletic uh, specimens of the day, and that's what Moody would do. He'd bring in very uh, well-built people, people who were to be looked up to, to speak at some subsidiary meeting of the Moody campaign. He said, they were natural athletes, and I felt that I could listen to them. I could not have listened to a sensuous-looking man, a man who was not a master of his own body, 
any more than I could to the presenter who coming to seeing the, who coming to seeing the prayers at college chapel dedication I saw get drunk on sherry when she abstracted from the banquet table just before the service. And so this, he had seen the hypocrisy in the church. He was not drawn to the church as a kid. Uh, but he said, At the meeting of the Stud Brothers, the audience being asked to stand up if they intended to try and follow Christ, he said, It appeared a very sensible question to me, but I was amazed how hard I found it to stand up. So he, he had this conviction but he was amongst 300 other boys his age, one of which being a reformatory ship group of boys that were, uh, you know, the cool guys, the ones that got in trouble and you didn't want to look like a wimp in front of them. He said at last one boy out of 100 or more from industrial or reformatory ships on the Thames suddenly rose It seemed to me such a wonderfully courageous act, for I knew perfectly what it would mean to him. You know, he'd be the one who got beat up or bullied or whatever for doing that. But I immediately found myself on my feet and went out feeling that I had crossed the Rubicon and must do something to prove it. And he was all about proving his Christianity, what uh, Brother Dan said about masculine Christianity. Well, shortly thereafter, Grenfell asked if he could help in some way at his local church and was assigned a Sunday school class where there were affluent, sharp-minded boys. They were well-educated. In addition to this Sunday school endeavor, he began visiting with a musician friend uh, from Australia, underground lodging houses where homeless or alcoholic or you name it, people who were not able to provide for themselves lived and they would have uh, church services with them at the end of closing time and, and all of that. And he met genuinely impoverished people, and he learned from this short experience, which assisted him in his hatred of alcohol. Uh, teetalitarianism was a very common thing among Christianity at the turn of the 20th century. Um, they saw the effects of it on families, Uh, alcoholism on families and the communities, and so he was a strong opponent of that. Um, Finally, in 1888, Grenfell passed his final exams and became a member of the College of Physicians and of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Grenfell writes in his autobiography that he received this in 1886, but all other sources say that he received this degree in 1888. And I think it goes to show his lack of attention to his bookwork, even his own history. Um, I just thought that was comical. It was, anyway, right? I've got his autobiography. You can look it up right here. But being now a licensed practitioner, he was appointed a house surgeon under his friend and mentor, Dr. Frederick Treves. It was during this time that Treves and Grenfell partnered, not only at the hospital, but outside the hospital, to provide training for young men that they called the Boys' Brigade. This program, consisting of inviting young men to train in basic military drills, led by a friend named Henry Richards. Once a year, Treves and Grenfell would host the the Boys' Brigade at Treves' home in Dorset, which was a location at Lulworth Cove, a very beautiful area. His house was located there. 
the boys would learn to swim and play water polo along with their discipline routine for the day. And if you had a brochure, if you've ever seen like the YMCA and it shows people kayaking in the water, or, you know, learning to swim with, with life vests on, they could have had maybe a brochure like that, but such methods of learning to swim, including paddling the boys away out into the cove and then pushing them out of the boat, and then they would learn to swim. Well, breakfast could only be eaten if they first took a dip in the cold water every day. And the Illustrated London News even wrote a story about this cutting-edge form of uh, training for these boys. Uh, they had not yet had a you know, YMCA program like America had uh, for that kind of thing. Trees had been a chairman also in the meantime. He was a very multifaceted individual. Chairman of the medical department of a missionary endeavor that was founded earlier, much earlier in 1882. It was called the National Mission to Deep Sea Fishermen. And it was fishermen in the northern waters. You can see the North Sea. So it's actually on the eastern side of the United Kingdom where this mission focused. Um, boats upon boats of people would go out uh, for weeks on end to uh, fish. That's what deep sea fishing does. If you've never seen Deadliest Catch, something like that. Much less uh, high-tech, much more dangerous, even though it's still considered a deadly um, profession today, hence the name of the show. But it says that these men were constantly um, bombarded by uh, some Swedish vessels that would come in with alcohol, tobacco, pornography, anything that they could make a dollar off of these men, even prostitution at times, horrible detrimental influences on these fishermen that came from very sound homes. And so the mission to deep sea fishermen was focused on curbing that influence away from their, their home, uh, the people that they cared about, their national, uh, nationally associated people. These ships were called copers, and um, the deep sea mission f outfitted their own boats to, first of all, deal with the rough seas, but also load up with tobacco and sell it at half cost to the fishermen, so that would draw them in. They would also have music available. They would hold church services. They would also give out good literature to them, so they were giving them, feeding them all the, the good to combat the bad. At first, the mission teams were known as Holy Joes. You know, here comes the Holy Joes. And they were a laughing stock, but they appreciated their genuineness. Over time, they came to grow on them as relationships developed, and um, so it was a successful mission. So after Dr. Trees had become chairman of the medical department, he urged the mission to improve not only giving the fishermen entertainment that was good for them, but also more than basic first aid. He wanted to see a real medical service in the seas because these fishermen were constantly breaking arms when they get their arms tangled in pots and different things, or they're netting. They don't have pots like 
Anyway, I was confusing the crab fishermen. So they had netting, but they would have constant injuries and they couldn't provide any treatment for them and they would lose out on the entire season because of lack of medical care or die along the way. So Treves, having this great idea, you know how people say, oh, you've got a great idea. Well, how about you head that? How about you develop a plan for that? So he did. And he was responsible for finding qualified doctors for this new endeavor. So Treves sent an offer to the adventurous Grenfell. He knew where he was from. He knew his experience at sea. He knew that he was a likable character. He was outgoing. He also knew that he was very courageous and could take the roughness of the seas. So on his first trip to the northern waters, Grenfell wrote to his mother that he suffered from seasickness and his small cabin stove, very tight quarters, gave off fumes that gave him a continual upset stomach. Well, when he would turn his oil stove down when he couldn't take it anymore, he would wake up to icicles on his cabin's roof. Not a good experience physically, as well as the danger outside of the ship that was very real. It says that um, five men just in the fleet that he was serving died during that season Um, in addition to nearly 200 in other parts of the North Sea just that year alone. Grenfell joined the mission officially as a missionary doctor with a um, payment of 300 pounds a year. That translates to about $45,000 in today's money. Um, A year later, he was promoted as superintendent of the mission, and that's what the arrow is for, at Gorleston. So he set up on land at the mission. He was uh, superintendent of recruiting other doctors for the mission, speaking in public to gather funds, and also sharing the gospel as he did so. Kerr writes that Grenfell was a talker, a man who had to pour out what was in him. Even if it wasn't much, he wanted you to know about it. He must share this joyous thing that he had found, this living Christianity with everyone he met. So being away for weeks at a time on these speaking engagements from Gorleston to raise awareness and funds for the mission, it made the committee realize that he needed to have his responsibilities lessened so he could focus more on his um, outward work and spreading the, the news of the, of the mission. And so he began to explore the Irish coast uh, where he could be used and serve to promote the mission on the next door island. So England's oldest colony, Newfoundland. Anyone know where Newfoundland is? Anybody know where that is geographically? All right, very good. Newfoundland and Labrador, they are one and the same uh, landmass. And it's actually England's oldest colony. Had a population of 140,000. Of those, 2,000 were, as he writes, Eskimo or Inuit Uh, They also uh, largely were made up of Cornish ancestry from where he was from and uh, some Viking heritage there. He boarded a ship in 1892 when Grenfell made him aware of this other need in Newfoundland and boarded the Albert, which you see behind me. Yes, it crossed the Atlantic. It's quite amazing to me. Um... Whenever they were arriving on the Newfoundland coast, 
Um, it was reported that there was a great tragedy that had occurred uh, with 200 fishermen that were out at sea. Uh, there was a sudden blizzard. 40 of that group um, were, were killed because of it. Um, also, by the time that they arrived, which was in July, so it took about three and a half weeks for them to make it there, a fire had decimated St. John's, which is Newfoundland's capital, by a careless match. You know how the story goes. 2,000 buildings had been destroyed, so they were approaching. They saw the smoke uh, from the just recent fire. Thankfully, there were a few casualties, but 11,000 people were still affected with all of the lost businesses, homes, and supplies, food, and all that. Grenfell and company stayed at St. John's to assist where they could, giving out medical supplies um, and also medical instruments to two of the doctors that were located in St. John's. They also held church services for people, and I'm sure that was very appreciated. People who were devastated. During that time, he saw 900 patients. He distributed clothing, books, magazines uh, to the people there. He also took a small cutter with him, just a small boat that could navigate smaller waters. And uh, there were homes just off the coast, shanties, shacks. He would help out individual families as well. So a year later, a seasonal hospital was opened in Battle Harbor. By the way, there's Newfoundland. Sorry about that. So there's Newfoundland and Labrador. That's where they landed at St. John's. Um, I don't know if I can get the... Right up here, this is um, St. Anthony. They had a great work in St. Anthony also um, down the road, but Battle Harbor, this is what the hospital looked like in 1893. And um, in two years, it became a full-fledged hospital year-round. They had enough volunteers to fill that. And... Um, he wrote in 1895, the same year, uh, his first book, and it's entitled Vikings of Today, and talking about the people who are now living in Newfoundland, drawing awareness to how they lived. Um, some of these unlearned fishermen's plight was not just the dangers of the sea, but also poor business dealings with local merchants. They didn't have much, including education, and these merchants who did, took advantage, and they had a, what was known as a credit system, and they would put a high interest on the starting, um, just like we would take out a loan for a home or a car or something, they took out loans to start their fishing business endeavors, maybe it was for a boat, for netting, or whatever, and so there was a high interest rate on those things, and their catch would pay off that debt. Well, if you had a poor catch, that debt would be incurred in the next season, and it would follow you year after year. And so to combat this cycle of poverty, he founded the Red Bay Cooperative Store. And so the people would bring what they had excess of or what they needed, they would buy and sell amongst themselves instead of being dependent on the local merchants, which did not put him in a good light with the local merchants taking their business and their schemes. But in 1897, Grenfell continued. I also note there were nine other 
cooperatives by 1920 that were success, successful, and um, eventually it became a private enterprise. Um, so they kind of uh, transferred goods between each other, and it was a unified effort. Um, so in 1897, Grenfell began lecturing in America, Boston and New York, to further the work, and caught the attention of uh, Lord Strathcona, who was very wealthy, and funded the first medical ship for, for the mission. And this medical ship was the first one outfitted with x-ray uh, machinery for medical service, as well as cots for long-term surgery, um, recuperation, and it served for 23 years. It actually sank in 1922, um, but thanks again to the widow of Lord Strathcona, a Strathcona II was um, dedicated in 1923, um, so a very long service. On the brass wheel of the, the captain's tiller, it said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Um, a great reminder for him or whoever else was uh, steering that ship across the seas. He also opened an orphanage, 1906, at St. Anthony. There's another picture. That was a postcard that people could buy, and that would also make money for the mission. And um, a second uh, orphanage was also built in 1923, so by the end he had two orphanages for children. One thing I really love about the buildings that they had uh, for all the mission was emblazoned across the front. You could probably see it from a half mile away, but Bible verses that you could see from a distance, and it reminded me of the Old Testament and command to write the word of the Lord, the law, on your doorposts and speak about them in your homes. And um, it'd be kind of neat if we had that on all of our homes, right? Our favorite verse until it changed, then you'd have a, a summer project maybe. But he also started Grenfell Crafts to make these missions self-supporting. He would train the local people and even uh, those that were helping or being helped in these missions to sew, uh, to make these very well-made crafts. They're called handicrafts, but they were more than handicrafts. They would make jackets, they would make um, shoes, uh, tons of different things that would further the mission. Well, meanwhile, Grenfell's still raising funds in America, and um, he made $20,000 in a single month in 19... I don't have it marked here, but it was around 1907, 08, uh, which would be the equivalent of about $500,000. So many wealthy people, and oh man, you know, the plight of these people. So anyway, he, he was a very good fundraiser. Grenfell also encouraged and directed various establishments to be self-supporting by using reindeer, goats, and livestock in general, teaching them how to uh, farm and... Um, in 1908, he convinced the mission to import 300 reindeer. Now, reindeer are different than caribou, I learned. And he had 250 does, 50 bucks, and he, he thought, well, if they could do it in Alaska, we could do it here. It's about the same landscape. And the herd did multiply. They had 1,000 by the end of year four. So four uh, quadrupled their number. 
But the local residents were not thrilled with this because if you know anything about reindeer herds and caribou, they, they're constantly on the move, constantly on the move. And they were putting tracks with their hooves. They would make craters in the snow. And whenever this would freeze in the very cold nights, the dog sled teams of the people, because that's what the people had, were dog sled teams. And they would, uh, comatics is what they called them, or humatics. These dogs would get their feet jarred in these craters as they were running and They'd have dogs with broken legs, and so the people were not thrilled with the reindeer idea. Actually, about four decades after uh, Grenfell passed away, some of these um, reindeer that were disbanded from the original group had mixed in with some of the caribou of the area, and, and, and reindeer have a natural parasite that they carry with them. It's part of their... Um, what do they say? With all these herds moving, and they, I don't mean to be uh, disgusting or anything, but the, the feces that come out of, of the reindeer would be all over the ground, and then these reindeer eat the grass that may be touching some of that, you know, because they're constantly eating the grasses, and they would get this parasite. Well, it doesn't affect the reindeer, but it does affect the caribou, and it would cause neurological issues down the road, and Grenfell didn't know this, so he accidentally brought, introduced some harmful thing without knowing. I'm sure he wouldn't have done it if he knew that would be the outcome. But anyway, his most daring escapade was in 1908, and he wrote a book about it, Adrift on an Ice Pan. And he was, uh, two weeks prior, he had done a surgery on a boy who had osteomyelitis, which is a swelling of the bones, and he had done surgery, and this boy, two weeks later, uh, his parents had not cared for the wounds properly. You know, I don't have a nursing background. And infection had set in. So after an Easter service, he was walking out of church, and emergency messages brought, hey, this eight-year-old boy is in dire need of help. And so without waiting for a, cert or a rescue party or anything, Grenfell took off on his own kumatik with his eight-dog sled. And he made it about three miles until he realized that he could make it across the bay that was frozen, about a four-mile trek from one side to the other to cut his time. And so he's about three-quarters of the way across or more. He said he was only about, I think, a half a mile from the shore whenever um, the ice was breaking up. He actually hit what was known as sish, or I would call it ice quicksand, and he said, who knows how deep it was. He knew that he was hitting it, and he urged the dogs to keep going, but they stopped because they were hearing the things breaking up around them. And um, because of the loss of momentum, it sunk, and it continued to sink until they went into water. One of the dogs died. He had to cut all the other harnesses quickly with his knife, um, made it onto a small chunk of ice. All the dogs were trying to get with him, and he was pushing them off, telling them to go to the other pieces of ice that were around him. And um, eventually they knew what he was talking about. He had to kill three of the dogs because he was soaking wet. No one could see him from off the shore. They didn't know he took the shortcut. He was so far off with the um, fog and things. No one could see him out there. Um, and so he killed the dogs. He skinned them. He used the skins as clothing and he remarked at how warm he was, and it's amazing. He said, these dogs can sleep on 50 below ice, um, and so he was amazed with that. 
but he stacked the carcasses of the dogs and made a windbreak for himself and actually slept through the night that way. He took some of the dog's bones, tied them together, and took his shirt that was still not wearable because it was wet and icy, um, and made a flag to try to wave you know, to someone on shore. Well, with people not seeing Grenfell for hours and hours, they, there was one man, and I read this in a biography, there was one man on the shore that was looking out at the coast, and he saw Grenfell, notified the people, and sent out the, the rescue party. And I, there's actually an interview of one of the rescuers on YouTube. It was uh, documentary footage from like the 1960s. All it is is the interview. It's not like a full documentary. And the man has like really dark glasses. He might not be able to see anymore, but he talks about how he was part of the rescue team and how he knew that he, Grenfell would not have survived much longer out there, even though Grenfell didn't make it that dire, but the man knew, you know, you couldn't survive those elements without water, without, you know, the proper warmth. But anyway, so this became his best-selling book. Um, in 1909, uh, he married Anna McClanahan, and she uh, aided him in all of his endeavors there. She was actually the daughter of a Confederate colonel in America. She was living in Chicago. They met at one of his speaking tours. He called her the lady in black throughout their entire marriage because that's his first time he saw her. Didn't know what her name was, but she was the lady in black, and she was a very faithful um, wife and uh, ministry partner, very good organizer. Um, She said, our work would not have been where it is today without the girl in black. He writes, in 1914, he founded the International Grenfell Association, and uh, this is their headquarters. Um, and you can maybe see what is written um, on the, um, the the wall there. And uh, I believe I have it written. Yeah, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Colossians 3.17 is on the one building. The other one says, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And uh, at one point, he challenged his hearers on his lecture tour to um, develop a clothing, and uh, it actually jump-started a clothing brand, and it's uh, called Grenfell Cloth. And there was a man named uh, Walter Haythornthwaite, and he was a mill owner, factory owner, and he took up that challenge to make a lightweight, breathable, uh, water-resistant fabric cloth and in 1924, um, I think, in 22 was the lecture. In the 1923, the cloth was patented, and he asked Grenfell what he should call it. He said, well, how about Grenfell cloth? All right, pretty humble. But anyway, um, so this is a Grenfell jacket. I've got a trench coat and then also a, a hunting jacket. Uh, it's still made today. So if you want a Grenfell jacket... Um, you can order it. It's still made in England. It's quite amazing. Um, but this Grenfell cloth was made of 600 lines of cloth per square inch. Water resistant, breathable, and that kind of thing. Um, had a lot of publicity from Winston Churchill, David Attenborough, the famous um, naturalist, uh, you know, nature guy. He gave the voiceovers for the Planet Earth series. Anyway, uh, so they wore Grenfell in some of their famous pictures. But anyway, uh, in 1927... Uh, the uh, 40th anniversary 
Oh, I'm sorry. In 1927, he was knighted. So we call him Sir Wilfred Grenfell. He was knighted for all of his work. And uh, by the time he retired, retired in 1932, there were six hospitals, four hospital ships, seven nursing stations, two orphanages, two large schools, 14 industrial centers, and a lumber mill. Now, doctrinally, Grenfell fell into an action-over-creed way of living. He wrote in his autobiography, The intimacy which grew up between some of my patients and myself showed me the seamy side of life in the great cities, its terrible tragedies and pathos, and how much good there is in the worst. So he believed in there's good in everyone instead of the biblical view that we are all fallen sinners. And in Romans it says there are none good. No, not one. Um, you know, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things and that kind of thing. But he focused more on the good in every, uh, much more good than there is in the worst. How much need of courage and what vast opportunities lie before those who accept the service of man as their service to God. So he was very socially minded in his, in his Christian walk, um, which humanitarian needs are very good as we know, for mission work. But he says further, he said, it proved to me how infinitely more needed, he says, are unselfish deeds than orthodox words. And that would include scripture. And so that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem. He had great training growing up with his father as the headmaster. He would have church services every week. He heard the word of God. That was his foundation. That's what caused him to do what he did. Now, I said it may be better to phrase, and this is in my own humble opinion, okay? But I said it may be better to phrase the last sentence as, it proved to me how needed are unselfish deeds as orthodox words. We know scripture says faith without works is dead. We must have the works to prove uh, that we trust Christ and uh, follow his word. For surely the deeds are rooted in the orthodox words of Scripture. It is the Scripture which, which first takes hold of the heart to change it into a new creature, not the actions of man. So the actions of feeding, clothing, caring for others prove the heart of the Christian and it proved the passion that Wilfred Grenfell had for these people. It's unmistakable and it's a beautiful thing. But these actions do not change the hearts of others unless the word of God is applied. And so their church services that they would hold and things um, supported that. It was a good thing that they still did that. That said, it's evident that Grinfell lived a faithful life to God and to others in a form of this muscular Christianity that would be almost impossible to duplicate today. I, I don't know of anyone that I can think of off the top of my head that did everything that he did um, and, and it influenced so many in that kind of way. So what can we learn? We've got no time. But um, ministry can be a disappointment. But you don't give up. He could have given up on the first missionary trip. But he didn't. He continued, and so should we, in the uh, faithful thing that we are called to do in the life of the church. Also, the importance of godly mentoring. Without Dr. Treves, he probably wouldn't have ever been a doctor and we wouldn't be talking about him. We should be willing to listen to wise men and women in our lives 
who can lead us in the ways of Christ, just as Paul trained Timothy. Also, the Lord sovereignly places people in our lives. There's no little people in the world. Um, C.S. Lewis writes, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal, someone who just dies. Nations, cultures, arts, they're all mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. They're just going to be smashed and, and move on. But it is immortals whom we joke with, who we work with, we marry, we snub, we exploit. Immortal, we are. Horrors or everlasting splendors. That's who we talk to every day. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, Lewis says. He says we must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and in fact is the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence, which parodies as love, as flippancy parodies merriment. Grenfell cared for the people that he encountered, maybe more so the poor than the, than the wealthy, because he knew that all are immortal and all have a destination, either with Christ or without him. This is the reality. Let us take seriously with joy our own calling, where we are, with the people the Lord has placed in our lives. In Psalm 135.6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. So may we be used also to exalt Christ where the Lord has placed us on the earth or as with Grenfell in the seas. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We're thankful that you are our sovereign king. You care about us. You lived with us. You died for us and rose again. We thank you, Lord, that you, through your word, have inspired people like this man uh, that we don't idolize, but we look uh, to as an example of faithful service, and we pray that uh, whatever we are called to do, you would make us faithful also. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.